At Gospel Community Church, our mission is to know the Bible, share life with others, and bring hope to our city and the world. You're listening to the Gospel Community Church Sermons Podcast, where we go through books of the Bible, verse by verse and line by line, to hear the truth that God's Word has to encourage, discipline, and bless us in our daily lives. Thanks for listening. Feel free to share the contents of this podcast, but please do not alter it in any way without permission. Please like, follow, and subscribe to us on Facebook or iTunes. Visit gospelcc.com for more content like this. At Gospel Community Church, our mission is to know the Bible, share life with others, and bring hope to our city and the world. Thanks again and have a blessed day. Good morning. How's everybody doing this morning? Good. Well, uh, if you don't know me, my name is Kurt McDonald, and I'm the lead teaching pastor here at Gospel Community Church, and it is uh, my great privilege to bring God's Word, uh, God's holy inspired and inerrant Word to you this morning. Uh, I'll begin with a uh, confession. I am unashamedly a son of the South. Amen. I love... I love the South. I've been all over the United States. I've been to other countries, uh, and you could not pay me to live anywhere else other than the South. Uh, I love Southern people. I love Southern food. I love Southern culture, fried chicken, mashed taters, sweet tea, biscuits, pickup trucks, pocket knives, shotguns, a deep love for mama and family. Yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. And don't forget (laughs) Chick-fil-A. Love the South. Absolutely love the South, but that's not to say that it doesn't have its flaws. That's, that's not to say that there aren't imperfections uh, here in the South, and, and one of those being that we live in a land of faith without implication. The South is a land of faith without implication, meaning this. You can go to uh, any type of survey website or whatever. There's a a really popular one called citydata.com. And and even just the city, the town, the community that we're in, most people, the vast majority of people identify themselves as religious. And most of them, if you do the city data for Fayette County, most of them are Protestant. So Protestant Christians. Okay? But... If you do your further research, you'll find that the vast majority of them do not attend church regularly. Faith without implication. That that is uh, the the great terror, the great problem with the South. And so they they might say, I'm a Christian, I believe in God, but essentially they live as a practical atheist. So when, when we're talking about implication, what I'm talking about is a daily devotion to Christ, a faith that works itself out in Bible reading and prayer and spiritual conversation with those around you, a longing to see others come to know Christ, a giving of your time, your talent, and your treasure uh, to grow the church. Here in the South, we love us some Jesus. Sure, we believe, and most know the story, but it has not gripped our hearts and flowed out into our lives. So... I was talking with uh, someone, and I've actually heard this statement a lot, and, and it's, it, it totally doesn't make any sense at all, but it goes something like this. I believe in Jesus as my Savior, but I do not believe in Him as my Lord. What, what that person is trying to communicate is something to the effect of, oh, sure, I believe, but let's just not get too crazy. And in that conversation, when that person said that to me, they said, I believe in Jesus as my Savior. I just don't believe in Him as my Lord. I replied, impossible. If you're taking notes, true faith without real life implication is impossible. It's impossible. It doesn't exist. That's a a myth to say, I believe in Jesus as my Savior. I just don't believe in Him as my Lord. That is an absolute myth. The book of James would say it this way. Faith without works is dead. Is dead. Meaning, if you believe, there will be evidence. Meaning, the gospel, listen, the gospel is truth that transforms. It absolutely, listen, there is truth out there that does not transform. Okay, that you have tons of useless facts stored in your head. I promise you, you do. 
I know I do. So there are truths out there that do not transform. Okay, some of you can rattle off statistics about baseball players or football players. You know all the sports stuff that I don't know. That, that's true, but it's not truth that transforms. But the gospel is truth that necessarily transforms us in our lives. You must understand that there is deep implications or practical implications to the doctrine that we believe. Let me give you an example. Romans 14, 7 through 8 would say this. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or we die, listen, we are the Lord's. We belong to the Lord. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Or Galatians 5, 24, which says this. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. These passages are teaching us this profound truth that you are not your own. That's the theology. That's the doctrine. You are not your own. Practical implication, if you are not your own, then what claim do you have over your own life? Zero. None. That, that's, the, that's the, so doctrine, theology, we belong to Christ. We're in Christ. Implication, my life is not my own, meaning I have no claim over it. Meaning I'm not the master of my own destiny. I do not chart my own course. It means I'm absolutely not mine. I belong body and soul to Christ. This is what the Heidelberg Catechism, which was written in 1563, says it this way. What is our only hope in life and death? It responds this way, that I am not my own, but belong body and soul, both in life and death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. I am not the captain of my own ship. I am not the master of my own destiny. I do not chart my own course. My choices are not to be made with only my best interest in mind. I am not my own. And therefore, everything that I have and all that I am is to be given to God because it is His. Meaning this, we are redeemed to be redeemers. We're redeemed to be redeemers. We're shown grace to show grace to others. We are delivered so we can point others to the deliverer. We are given hope so we can give hope to others. We are shown mercy so we can show mercy to others. This is a radically different way of living than just, oh, sure, I know the story. I believe Jesus out on the cross. This is a radically different way of living. Faith, true faith, has life implications because it's a truth that transforms. Now, to be sure, right, we're... We're good, reformed, believing people here, right? So to be sure, what I'm saying is we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, but if you belong to Christ, there will be works. It's not your works that make you belong to Christ, but if you belong to Christ, there will be evidence that you actually do belong to Christ. Now, this week in our text, we have a mountain of text to get through, right? So we're going to try to cover 29 and 30 Lord willing, and the creek don't rise, before uh, dinner this evening. So, <laughs> the implications of faith come shining through this text. What happens is David conquers the Amalekites, strikes them down, and recovers all of this spoil. And, and there was these, these men that, that were left behind because they were so exhausted and, and and they, they show up, and, and so David begins to distribute the spoil evenly among the soldiers who fought and among the soldiers who didn't fight. And there's this big argument. No, no, you, it's not fair. You can't give them the spoil because they didn't fight, which seems fair, right? But David's reasoning is this. God gave us the victory. God gave us the spoil. Therefore, what claim do we have over it? None. So the implication then is to evenly distribute it to all, whether they fought or whether they didn't. True faith, true belief came out in a practical implication of distributing the spoil evenly. So that's what we're going to see this week. And that means for us, that for us, for our true faith, it must have implications in our day-to-day -day lives. Now, if you missed last week, let me catch you up. and I'm going to do this very quickly because we've got to get to the text. Here's what happened. David has been running from evil King Saul. 
He's been on the run like this whole time. I mean, we, he has been on the run. Fugitive uh, from King Saul has been trying to kill him. And he had nowhere else to go. So he had to go over into enemy territory, over to the Philistines. And what happened is he essentially embeds himself with the Philistine people and becomes a spy, essentially a double agent is, is what he's doing. He's, he's playing both sides. So he tells the king of the Philistines that he's going out and raiding and killing his own people when that's not what he's doing at all. He's actually going out and killing and raiding the enemies of Israel. But he fools and tricks the king. The, the king Achish essentially says, well, I'm going to make you my bodyguard. And then the Philistines mount this massive attack. They gather all the Philistine armies and they're about to attack Israel. And so now David is there embedded with the Philistines. But, but wait, he's supposed to be the anointed king. And so how can he fight against, with the Philistines against the Israel, Israelites? He can't do that. Nor can he not fight because if he does that, then his cover is blown and the Philistines will kill him. And then he won't be king. He's in a terrible conundrum. He is in a very tight spot. Verse 1 of chapter 29. Now the Philistines had gathered all their forces at Aphek, and the Israelites were encamped by the spring in Jezreel. And the Lord of the Philistines were passing by hundreds and thousands, and David and his men were passing on the rear with Achish. The commanders of the Philistines said, what are these Hebrews doing here? And Achish said to the commanders of the Philistines, Is not this David, the servant of Saul, the king of Israel, who has been with me now for days and years? And since he deserted to me, I have found no fault in him to this day. But the commanders of the Philistines were angry with him. And the commanders of the Philistines said, Send the man back, that he may return to his place to which you have assigned him. He shall not go down with us into battle. At least in the battle he become an adversary to us. For how could this fellow reconcile himself to his Lord? Would it not be with the heads of these men here? Is not this David of whom they sing to one another in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. So, so here they are. Again, imagine military on parade, right? You have all the commanders. The, the troops are lined up. They're marching in form right in front of the commanders and against the lords of the Philistines. Just get the picture in your mind of soldiers and spears and horses, and, they're, and they're, they're mounting their forces to get ready to attack Israel. And marching along comes Achish with all of his Philistine soldiers, and then there's David and his 600 Hebrew Israelite soldiers. They're like looking out like, okay, we're going to go fight the Israelites. And there's Israelites. This, what gives? Well, Achish gives his defense of David and says, hey, no, no, no. He, he's defected. He's defected. He, he has come over to our side. It's totally cool, guys. Everybody take a chill pill. David's on our side now. And, and he's going to fight with us. I've, I've found no fault in him. Every, everything's been been totally fine. Well, apparently they're not having it. They're like, have you not heard the Israelite, you know, number one top hit song? <laughs> like the, the song that they sing all the time, Saul has killed his thousands, David his ten thousands. What, what people group are those thousands that they're talking about that David has killed? Philistines. Like everybody knows the song. No way. Because look, if David wants to get back right with his people, if, he, if he's trying to He's defected, but he's trying to get back. What's the best thing he could do? Well, double cross us. Duh, Akish. You know, get, get this guy out of here. This doesn't make any sense at all. So what's the, the last thing that David had said to King Akish? Does anybody remember? King Akish said, uh, hey, David, I'm going to make you my bodyguard, and you're going to go out with us into battle. And David said, all right, you'll see what your servant can do. Remember that, that, that really ambiguous statement that, that David made? And so it seems, we're, now we're, we're stepping into speculation here because the text doesn't tell us, but it seems like they're absolutely right. Okay, question. Has David always been fighting for Israel? Absolutely. Has he tried to kill Saul? No. Even when he had the chance, he didn't. So if David goes down into battle, just, just from looking at David's track record, what do you think he's going to do? Well, probably at a key point in the battle, he's going to flip the script and start killing Philistines. And so it seems that they are absolutely onto his plot. Now, 
They're not having it. They send him away. And good news, now David is out of his conundrum, right? He, he's not trapped. So he doesn't have to go kill his own people. And he's being sent away by the Philistines. He's in the clear. This is, this is good news, great news for David. Verse 6, then Achish called David and said to him, as the Lord lives, you have been honest. <laughs> not really. As the Lord lives, you have been honest to me as it seems right that you should march out with me in the campaign. For I have found nothing wrong uh, in you from the day of your coming to me to this day. Nevertheless, the Lord's do not approve of you, so go back now and go peaceably, that you may not displease the Lord's, the Philistines. And David said to Achish, but what have I done? What have you found in your servant from the day I entered your service until now, that I may not go and fight against the enemies of my Lord, the king? And Achish answered David and said, I know that you are blameless in my sight as an angel of God. Nevertheless, the commanders of the Philistines have said, he shall not go up in the battle with us. Now, then rise early in the morning with the servants of your Lord who came with you and start early in the morning and depart as soon as you have light. So David set out with his men early in the morning to return to the land of the Philistines. But the Philistines went up to Jezreel. So he's out of his conundrum. He's out of this, this tight spot. But what's interesting is that David actually protests. What's even more interesting is that this pagan king swears by Yahweh. Look, look at verse 6. Then Achish called and said to David, as the Lord, in the original Hebrew, that would have been as Yahweh lives, says the pagan Philistine. As Yahweh lives, you have been honest, which is funny because he totally has not. Uh, and so he, he's saying, hey, you're off the hook. But, but David says, but da- uh, look at verse 8. And David said to Achish, but what have I done that I that you, I've not found favor? He's argue- he should have said, oh, I, I get it, Achish, no problem. Let's get out of here, you know. But, but he actually argues back a little bit. Now, we can only speculate that, one, he's continuing to keep his cover. Right? He's been a spy, ingratiated in, in with the Philistines, so he's just maintaining his cover. We can, again, also speculate that his plan is to double-cross them in the battle. So he does not want to leave. He wants to stay. He wants to go into battle and at a key moment turn and begin to kill and fight uh, with the Philistines. Here's what we do know for sure. God has other plans for this battle. Now, who was here last week? Okay, so uh, spooky Samuel comes up out of the grave. Remember that part? Uh, Samuel begins to talk to Saul. And what did Samuel tell Saul about this battle? That the Israelites were going to lose, that they were going to be given into the hands of the Philistines, and that Saul and his sons were going to die. So question, what happens if David goes into this battle? He dies. He dies. What God just did is he used pagan kings to deliver David from certain death. He sent him away. God just delivered David. Now, what David doesn't know is that there's been a raid on his town and that his wives and children and all of that has been taken. And so what's happening, the, the, the story behind the story. So the story behind the story is this, that God just used pagan kings to deliver David from certain death. But the story behind the story that's behind the story is that he has a reason for why he delivered him because God wants David to go deliver his people. David was delivered so he could be a deliverer. In the same way, church family, we are delivered so that we can be deliverers. That's what God is calling us to do. We're redeemed to be redeemers. We're shown hope so we can give hope. This is God's plan for us in our lives. If you're taking notes, we have been delivered so that we might deliver others. This is exactly what's happening in this test. I want you to know, church family, God can show up to your lost neighbors in a dream. God can show up to your lost family member, just pop up out of thin air. Hello, I'm the Lord Jesus. You're going to follow me now. Uh, God can write in the sky, hey, you stop running away from me and follow the Lord King Jesus. He can write it in the sky. He can do whatever he wants. But God has chosen in his mystery to send us to go deliver people, to go share the gospel message. It's crazy. Like, I don't know why he does it, but this is his plan. It's to send us to to be 
deliverers of other people. And so that's exactly what is about to happen, which is another reason why we've chosen to go through these two chapters together, because they fit together uh, as one unit. David here is saved so that he can go and save. You know, it's, it's a thing that we often say around here that, that, yes, we believe that the cross of Christ saves us from sin, from death, and from the devil. Sin, death, and the devil. That's what the cross, it saves us from those things. But we're not just saved from something. We also say what? We're saved to something. Absolutely. We are saved to a community, meaning we are adopted into the family of God, and we are saved to a mission, that is sharing this gospel message and seeing it continue to go forward. Verse 1 of chapter 30, when, Now when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day, the Amalekites had made a raid against the Negev and against Ziklag. They had come over at Ziklag and burned it with fire and taken captive the women and all who were in it, both great and small. They killed no one, but carried them off and went their way. And when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire and their wives and their sons and daughters taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. David's two wives had been taken captive, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David was greatly distressed for the people spoke of stoning him because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters but David strengthened himself in the Lord, his God. Look back at verse 1. It says this, Now when David and his men came to Ziklag, um, a little bit of geography for you, from Aphek, where he was, to Ziklag is 60 miles. So now when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day, meaning they traveled 30 miles in one day and 30 miles in a second day and then showed up. You think them boys are tired? Even, even if you're riding a horse that distance, it takes a long time, and it's still incredibly tiring. The, these guys show up, you know, again, there's, there's no convenience stores, there's no, you know, McDonald's, you can't stop it. I mean, these guys are hustling. This is an army that is, I mean, just rip-roaring, flying, right? They show up. Now, we can only, again, we're going to make an assumption here that maybe they heard the Amalekites were in town and that's why they fly, you know, as fast as they can to get back to Ziklag. And when they show up to Ziklag, they're, they're absolutely just wrecked, just exhausted. And they find their town burnt and everyone gone. They, they assume that the women and children have been taken probably because there's not bodies and blood everywhere. It's, it's just the town's burnt and everybody's, uh, everybody's gone. And so what happens next is even though they are totally exhausted, it says they begin to weep and, and cry aloud until, it says, until they had no more strength left in them. I mean, the, the Amalekites had come in, this, this other, no, remember the Amalekites, the ones that King Saul, King Saul was supposed to totally wipe out. He didn't wipe out. Now they're there. Remember also David has been making raids while in Philistia. And who has David been making raids against? Oh, oh yeah, the Amalekites. So it seems like this is a little bit of got you back. So it says that uh, on the third day, the Amalekites had made raids against the Negeb. Remember, that's just the southern portion of Judah uh, and against Ziklag. And they burned it with fire. They killed no one, uh, meaning that they have taken these women and children as slaves, obviously, either to keep, to take the wives for themselves or to sell them uh, into slavery. Now, uh, if that's not bad enough, the city has been burned and destroyed. Women and children are taken, his wives among them. Now there is even unrest among the men. I mean, you can, you can imagine, like, one, they're totally distressed, they're exhausted, and now they're grieved. Now, I don't know if you've ever been totally exhausted and grieved. You, you don't really think good. <laughs> you don't make good choices. But their reasoning goes something like this. Who has got us over here in, in Philistia? David. Who's making us do the raids against the Amalekites? David. Who wasn't here to protect our women and children? David. So let's, let's kill him, let's stone him. 
question is, in this great predicament now, Saul wants to kill him. Uh, the Amalekites want to kill him. The, the Philistines kicked him out. I mean, he's in a really bad spot. What, what is David going to do? Look at the end of verse 6. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. That was his response. He strengthened himself in the Lord his God. Now, what does that mean? Did he go into his tent, look in the mirror? David, you are smart. You are really strong and stunningly handsome. You've been in tighter jams than this before. You can get yourself out. Absolutely not. That's not what he did. This wasn't just strengthening himself. This was strengthening himself, what? In the Lord. Again, we ask the question, what does that mean? Well, it was clearly laid out for us back in 1 Samuel chapter 23. Do you remember that? When David is deeply distressed and his friend, anybody remember? Jonathan shows up and it says that Jonathan then strengthened David in the Lord. And how did he do that? He began to remind him of the promises of God. Jonathan began to say to David, David, you're going to be king. You're the anointed chosen one. Saul's not going to kill you. No harm is going to come to you. God is on your side. He was reminding him of the promises of God, and he was reminding him of his identity in God. And so apparently when David here is strengthening himself in the Lord, he is reminding himself of the promises of God. He's reminding himself of his identity in God. And church family, this is exactly what we need to do. I wonder if you are in the habit of strengthening yourself in the Lord in times of distress, reminding yourself of God's promises over your life, that he's going to work all things together for your good. I wonder if you remind yourself that you are God's son, you're God's daughter, that he loves you, that he's for you. I wonder if you remind yourself of those promises. I wonder if you remind yourself that you're a new creation in Christ. This is what David absolutely does. If you're taking notes, if we're going to live out the implications of our faith, we must daily remind ourselves of who we are in Christ. Th these implications walking out, if I'm redeemed to be a redeemer, if, I'm a, if I've been delivered so I can be a deliverer, if I've been given hope so I can give hope, I need to remind myself of who I am in Christ. I have been delivered. That stuff is behind me. I have been given hope. I have the greatest hope in the world that Jesus has saved me and that he's coming back. Like we, we need to be reminding ourselves of these things so that the practical implications of our faith will pour out into our everyday life. Verse seven. And David said to Abiathar, the priest, the son of Ahimelech, bring me the ephod. So Abiathar brought the ephod to David and David inquired of the Lord, shall I pursue after this band? Shall I overtake them? And he answered, pursue, for you shall surely overtake them and shall surely rescue. So David set out and 600 men who were with him, and they came to the brook of Bezor. When they were, and they left behind, stayed. But David pursued, he and 400 men, 200 stayed behind and were too exhausted to cross the brook Bezor. Uh, recently, I had a an amazing opportunity to go um, fly fishing in, in a, a stream in Colorado. And, and I was there with uh, some other pastor friends of mine and, we, you know, got the waders on the, the whole deal. And, uh, and so we had, we had fished out this one little section. And so the, the guide that was there with us says, we're going we're gonna to cross um, this, this river. And like, again, we're there in Colorado. The mountains are there. The, I mean, the water is rushing. And, and, you know, the guide says, look, don't fall down. <laughs> if you fall down, your waders fill up with water and then you drown. Okay, so don't fall down. Like, okay, note to self, right? Don't, <laughs> don't fall down. So he said, you know, I'm, I'm pretty proficient at, at crossing. If you start to get wobbly, you know, just, just grab on. You know, he said, look, you don't fall down. We're like, all right, we got it. We, you know, we're fine. You know, it's, it's me and uh, two other pastor buddies, and, you know, we're tough, you know, outdoor-type people. We, we got this. We start wading in, and, and it's up to our ankles, and, you know, it's a little slippy. You know, fine, we got it. You know, you're good, you're good. You know, I ain't hanging on to nothing. As we start wading out, and then it's up to our knees, and that water's pulling, and you start to feel it go down, and, you know, you're struggling to keep up. And, you know, 
I think it was about the third time that God said, listen, guys, you do not want to fall down. And we're like, all right, fine. And so all three of us just reach out and we grab onto the guide. So I'm, I'm standing, I was at the end of the line. I'm standing there. I'm grabbing on my other buddy's arm. He's grabbing onto the other guy's arm. And there, we're, all three of us are hanging on to the guide as we're just, you know, trudging, you know, through this stream. It, it, was, it was incredibly exhausting with the current and just trying to get through. So imagine these men who have just come 30 miles in one day, 30 miles in another day. They show up to their town, which has been burned. Their wives and their children have been taken away. They've wept until they just have nothing left at all. And they physically could not cross this this raging stream. And so some men are left behind. 200 are left behind and 400 move forward and uh, continue to pursue these men. David had prayed and asked the Lord, and look at verse 7, and David said to Abiathar, the high priest, the son of Ahimelech, if you remember, that was the only priest to escape when the evil king Saul killed all the priests of Nob. And so he says to me, bring the ephod. That was the little apron thing that they would wear when they would pray. And so David calls out to the Lord and The Lord's answer is pretty clear. Shall I pursue? Shall I overtake them? And he answered, pursue, for you shall surely overtake and shall surely rescue. And so David sets out, leaving some of the men who couldn't cross and taking the 400. Now, the only problem is they need to find these guys. How are are they going to track down these Amalekites who have taken away all of their women and all of their children? Well, in God's providence, he sends them this Egyptian, verse 11, they found an Egyptian in the open country and brought him to David and gave him bread and he ate and they gave him water to drink and they gave him a piece of cake of figs and two clusters of raisins. And when he had eaten, his spirit was revived for he had not eaten bread or drunk water for three days and three nights. And David said to him, to whom do you belong and where are you from? He said, I'm a young man of Egypt, a servant to an Amalekite and my master left me behind because I fell sick three days ago. We had made a raid against the Negeb of the Cherethites and against which belongs to Judah and against the Negeb of Caleb, and we burned Ziklag with fire. And David said, Will you take me down to this band? And he said, Swear to me by God that you will not kill me or deliver me into the hands of my master, and I will take you down to this band. The Amalekites live up to their reputation and they leave this sick man to die. But in God's providence, they find uh, this man and basically revive him. And he knows exactly where the Amalekites are headed. And so in exchange for him not being sent back to the Amalekites and David not killing him, uh, he agrees to take them directly to where these Amalekites are. So take a look at what's going on in their camp. And... When he had taken them down, behold, they were spread abroad all over the land, eating and drinking and dancing because of the great spoil they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. And David struck them down from twilight until the evening of the next day, and not a man of them escaped except 400 young men who mounted camels and fled. We would, we would love to know exactly how many Amalekites there were, were killed, but it's, the text is insinuating that The minority was 400, which is exactly the amount that David shows up with. But the minority, only only 400 escaped. So upwards of 1,000, maybe more, who knows? At least 1,000. David recovered all the Amalekites had taken, and David rescued his two wives. Nothing was missing, whether great or small. So with his 400 bone-tired, exhausted men... He goes in and slaughters over a thousand Amalekites. Incredible. David also captured all the flocks and the herds, and the people drove the livestock before him and said, This is David's spoil. The men who were just ready to stone him are now really excited that he has led them in victory, and there's a bunch of spoil there. So, uh, what we see here in this text is, is an amazing rescue from God and, and a change in the heart of his men who were ready to stone him. Now they're ready to praise him and give him a part of his spoil. And yay, David is, is the, the feeling in the camp. Now we have hastened to get to this spot here where we want to see this 
faith that David has, this implication of his faith shining through and shining forward. Verse 11, or I'm sorry, verse 21. Then David came to the 200 men who had been too exhausted to follow David and who had been left at the brook of Besor. And when they went to meet David and to meet the people who were with him, and David came near to the people and he greeted them. Just, just get this picture in your mind, these, these exhausted men just kind of lulling around, looking over the horizon to see if David was victorious and to see if he had rescued their sons and their daughters. And there David appears and he comes down the hill and, and is crossing the stream with these women and children. And, and you just, just picture in your mind husbands and wives reuniting and, and holding one another and kissing each other and, and dads picking up their little boys and their little girls and holding them in their arms. It's a beautiful picture. Verse 22 In the midst of all that beauty, verse 22, then all the wicked and worthless fellows among the men who had gone with David said, because they did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we recovered, except that each man may lead away his wife and his children and depart. Right? They're saying, it's not fair. They didn't go fight. They stayed here. Right? What's fair is fair. We earned that. They didn't earn it. So because they didn't earn it, they don't get it. Right? That's their... That's their reasoning, and it sounds like it makes sense. But listen to David's response here, verse 23. But David said, You shall not do so, my brothers, with what the Lord has given us. He has preserved us and given into our hands the band that came against us. Who would listen to you in this matter? For as his share is who goes down into the battle, so shall his share be who stays with the baggage. They shall share alike. And he made it a statute and a rule from Israel from this day, from, uh, from this day forward to this day. What, what's happening here? Well, first off, David begins addressing these wicked fellows. Remember, David's army is made up of the, the people who have discontented or left Saul's army, right? Th- these, are, these are the rejects. That's what David's got. And so, again, these are, these are rough soldiers. That's, that's who they are. They're rough soldiers, not to mention they just got done with a sneak attack killing a bunch of people. These are, these are rough, tough dudes. And not to mention they're trying to cut out the, these people who were too weak to go. They're trying to cut them out of the spoil. But what's the first thing that David says to them? Look at it. Look at how David addresses them. But David said, you shall not do so, my Brothers, My br- he calls them brothers. He doesn't say, you worthless fellows. He doesn't say, you idiots. He doesn't say, he doesn't, he, he calls these worthless fellows his brothers and he, he appeals to them. He attributes everything that they have, including their very lives, to the Lord. He said, it was the Lord who has given us our lives. It's the Lord who has given us these spoils. And so the question that he asks is rhetorical. Who would listen to you in this matter? Meaning, what you're saying doesn't make rational sense. Again, if it is the Lord's, what claim do you have over it? That's the argument that he's making. If the Lord delivered us, if the Lord has rescued us, if the Lord has given us the spoil, then what claim do you have over the spoil? What gives you the right to say that they don't get any? Who would listen to you in this matter? It doesn't make any sense. This is exactly what he's saying. And then he draws out the implication of the Lord's lavish grace. What's the implication here of the Lord's lavish grace? Well, anybody who went to battle, they get their share. And even the people who didn't go to battle, they get a share too. It is an implication of the Lord's lavish grace. Incredible, incredible what he says. In addition, he sets a standard of grace and makes it a law. That was the very last thing that we saw. And he made it a statute and a rule from Israel from that day forward to this day. Now, again, just a little bit of backstory. I don't want to go down this trail too much, but remember what's happening while all of this is going on. Israel is fighting the Philistines. They're losing. And we're going to find out next week what happens in the battle. Saul, the king, dies. And here is David making statutes and rules for all of Israel, his first official act as king. Amazing, amazing what's happening here in this text. David, in addition, 
doesn't just equally distribute the spoil among his people there, but he actually takes it a step further and gives gifts to people all throughout the land in a bunch of towns that I can't pronounce. Here we go. When David came to Ziklag, he sent part of the spoil to his friends, the elders of Judah, saying, here's a present from the spoils of the enemies of the Lord. It was for those in Bethel, in Ramoth, in the Negeb of Jatir, in Eroth, in Sipmoth, in that place too, in Rachel, <laughs> in the cities of the Jeramulites, in the cities of the Kenites, in Horam, and Borashan, in that place too, in Hebron, for all the places where David and his men roamed. Again, while, he was, while David was on the run with his men, these were the people in the towns that sheltered them, that gave them food, that... that showed lavish grace upon them. And so what David does with all of this spoil is he distributes it out all throughout the land of Judah. You see, what he's giving out of, he's giving out of the bounty that was given to him. Church family, that is exactly what we do. We do not give out of what is ours. Remember what we said at the beginning of the sermon? You are not your own. So when we give generously, we're not giving out of what is ours. We're giving out of the bounty that Christ has given to us. And that's exactly what he's doing. So church family, the the call from this text is to see David's faith and to see how these practical implications, the distribution, the even distribution of these things. This was a practical implication of his faith. So what does that mean for us who aren't warring tribes and coming up with spoil from war? Practically, what does this mean for us? What are the implications of being a delivered people? It means this, the first one. I have six ideas for you, and then I'm out of your hair. First idea. My house is not my private residence, but is the center for doing ministry. That is the practical implication out of the Lord blessing you, the Lord giving you a job, giving you the energy to go work that job, to earn an income, to pay your mortgage. Your house is not your house. It is not your private residence. It is a center for doing ministry, meaning you're opening up your home to your neighbors so that you can bring them in to share the gospel. It means you're inviting friends and family into your home, sharing a meal around a table where you can break down barriers and break down walls and begin to share the good news of the gospel. It means that your home is a center for doing ministry. It also means this, that my money is not a tool to build my personal wealth and comfort, but a tool to build the kingdom of God. That's what money is. This is the practical implication. If I am not my own, if I'm not my own, then that means the energy that I have that earns my income, I don't turn that around and use it solely to benefit myself. It means that my money is a missionary tool that turns itself out and goes to seeing the gospel go forward into all of the nations. Doesn't it feel good when your bank account is full? Amen. It feels so good on payday. You look at that number there and you're, you're really excited. But, but the, the warning here is to be careful because that can consume you. And instead of using it as a tool to build something that will last forever, it will eat you alive. It happens to so many. Another big idea. My kids are not where I find my self-worth in their obedience or success, but those that I lead to the cross and then on mission. So many of us, so many of us try to find our self-worth in how obedient our kids are. Do you see what they, you see that? I told them to do something, they went and did it immediately because I am the man of the house. Or, or the success of our kids. You see, him, you see him get that gold? You see that? That was my kid. My kid did that. Made the honor roll, boy. And we try to find our self-worth in our kids instead of living out practical faith implications, which says, I'm not looking to them for my self-worth and their obedience or their success, but it's my job to lead them to the cross, teaching my children the gospel, and then leading them on mission. Let me say a word to the mothers. Don't let your primary identity be mom, but let it be missionary. So, so many moms get so wrapped up in being mom that that's all that they think they are. 
Don't let your primary identity be mom, but let it be missionary. Dads, don't let your identity be disciplinarian, but disciple maker. Instead of, it's my job to make sure that they obey, and that's all that I am, and I'm wrapped up in making sure they obey. Listen to your mother. Listen to your father. Listen, you, know, you have to listen and obey. Rather, see your role as not just as disciplinary. Now, ma- making your child a disciple of Jesus, you need to discipline them. Amen. Yeah. In Jesus' name. D- discipline comes into that, but instead of elevating disciplinarian over disciple maker, we need to get disciple maker over disciplinarian. Another big idea. My spouse does not exist to meet my needs, but they are the person in which I am called to lovingly serve. Do you see how this is faith implications? Your faith coming alive. Your faith changing your worldview. Your faith changing how you view your money, your house, your wife, your kids. This is exactly what faith should do. Just think about what Ephesians 5 says that we, we all know, where we should know this, men. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. It, it was Christ's example, okay? That's the theology. What did Christ do for the church? He died for it, okay? So that's a theology. The implication then, this one, this, this scripture is kind of in reverse. The implication then is that we love our wives. Doctrine? right? Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, that he gave himself up for it. The doctrine is that Christ gave himself up for the church. The implication is that we should love our wives that way. Faith making its way out into a practical implication. Another big idea. My job is not where I build my self-worth or simply make money to pay bills, but it is my mission field. Advancing in your company is not a bad thing. As a matter of fact, it could be a really good thing. But some people make their whole lives about that. I got I to go further. I got to do better. I got to get bigger. I got to. And instead of seeing it as a place where it builds my self-worth and, and, you know, pays my bills, it is my mission field. Last idea. My hobbies are not simply for enjoyment's sake, but they are to give me rest that I need to get back to making disciples. <laughs> you should be hard at work loving and serving your family, working your job and serving the church, and that should make you tired. Amen? We we need to be a people about work, about doing work, loving and serving our families, working our jobs and loving and serving the church, and that should take up most of your time and that should make you tired. Then you should get a good hobby, okay? Some people think golf is a good hobby. I disagree. Go ride a horse. That's way better horseback riding, fishing, get a hobby, go, go get rest. But, it, but our problem is we're trying to drive our entire lives into this place of rest. We're all about, I just can't wait till I retire. What about retirement? You got retirement? Can't wait till I retire. Why? Because I get to sit around and do nothing. The, the Bible has no idea of Christians who sit around and do nothing. Retirement and hobbies should be to give you rest so that you can get back to following Jesus, loving your family, serving your church. That should make you tired. And then you go back into that season of rest so you can get refilled, refreshed, and then get back to work. Faith making its way into a practical implication in your life. Well, we've said about this text from the very beginning throughout this whole entire book that David is a foreshadow of Christ, that David is a foreshadow of Christ, that that we're seeing this king, and and he is a picture of the king who would come. As a matter of fact, in the Gospels, Pilate stands before the people, and Pilate says, I have found no fault in him three times. Go back and read where Achish says to David, I have found no fault in you three times. And then this king who goes on this daring rescue mission to save his people and to lavishly pour out grace upon them, King David, is a picture of great King Jesus 
who goes on a daring rescue mission, leaving the Father and the Spirit and coming and taking on flesh and and living the life that we should have lived and dying the death that we should have died in our place for our sins in this crazy daring rescue mission so that he might lavishly pour out grace and evenly distribute that saving grace to all who would believe. That's what David does. He evenly, it's not like you get some grace and you get a little bit of grace and you read your Bible last week, you get a lot of grace. No, it is the fullness of God's grace that is poured out and distributed evenly to all of his people. That is the picture that David is showing us of the picture of what Jesus does to those who are with him, for him, and follow him and allow those practical implications of the lavish grace of Jesus that's poured out to us to flow out into our everyday lives. This is the great King Jesus in which we serve. Let's pray. Well, Lord, we thank you for this text. We thank you for the example of David who shows us what it means to put faith into practice. And Lord, I pray for a group of people. I pray for Gospel Community Church that we would be a people that have practical implications from our faith, that we're not just a people that say we believe, we believe on you, sure, we know the gospel story, but we would be a people that live out the implications of that great gospel every day in our homes, with our money, with our spouses, with our children, and in our jobs, that our lives, our hearts, our minds would be centered on you and about you so that we might know you more deeply and know you more fully and live out this great gospel in the mission in which you have sent us forward to do. We ask all these things in the mighty and the powerful name of the risen King Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening. Feel free to share the contents of this podcast, but please do not alter it in any way without permission. Please like, follow, and subscribe to us on Facebook or iTunes. Visit gospelcc.com for more content like this. At Gospel Community Church, our mission is to know the Bible, share life with others, and bring hope to our city and the world. Thanks again and have a blessed day.